Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Legi from London. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find this show as well. Today, it's an absolute pleasure to welcome onto the show Felix Brooks Church, co-founder and CEO of Sanku. They focus on nutrition, especially focused on fortifying foods, foods such as maize flour. They're based in Tanzania and Kenya, and they really have an emphasis on reaching the last mile, those rural places and communities where big organizations simply struggle to reach. They are a social enterprise, uh, but yet they are owned by a nonprofit organization. We're going to be looking at their business model and also the technology and logistics that underpin the work they do. So without further ado, Felix, a big heartfelt welcome onto the Do One Better podcast today. Good morning. Uh, great to be here, Alberto. Great. Well, I think it's good afternoon where you are. You're in Tanzania. Good morning for us here in the UK. Why don't we kick off by finding out a little bit about Sanku. So you're the co-founder and CEO of Sanku. Love to find out what it's all about. Yep, that's that's correct. And, and thank you again for having me. So Sanku, we're, we're a, a social enterprise, uh, meaning we're a business, but very socially driven. And uh, the, the sector that we're focusing on is malnutrition or combating malnutrition. Uh, but within that, we're very targeted in what's called food fortification, literally making staple foods, the foods you eat every single day, stronger by adding uh, nutrients, vitamins, and minerals. And so we do this throughout East Africa. We've targeted the, the foods that people eat the most. We add the nutrients to those foods, and those foods get to the people that are most at risk or need them most. And the outcome is better health, better lives, saved lives as well. And so you're based in Tanzania. Where do you operate? Based in Tanzania, uh, I moved here in 2013. Um, and we just recently last year launched Kenya as well. And to get to the numbers that we want to get to, we're likely to be across East Africa in five, seven, eight countries over the next five, seven, eight years. And so you're a social enterprise. Um, tell me about your connection with the, with the non-for-profit space. Yeah, we're, uh, you know, although we're a social enterprise, we're, we're a nonprofit. So any quote unquote revenue or profits that we create through the market go back into scaling the business. And we definitely rely on philanthropy and donors to get us to a point of scale. Um, Sanku is part or was part of an initiative of a larger international NGO called Project Healthy Children that was founded uh, over 20 years ago. And that focused more on what's called large scale fortification, really policy work, working with governments in Africa to pass laws to mandate the, the fortification of staple foods. Sanku was created once we realized that that box, I wouldn't say is easily checked, but there's a lot of organizations working on what's called large scale fortification. Nobody was working on small scale fortification, you know, fortifying foods at the village level, for example, arguably reaching the most at risk. So we made a pivot about, um, almost 10 years ago, but really five years ago, we made an official pivot to become Sanku. We still retain Project Healthy Children as that tagline. My co-founder uh, and, and board is very much focused on what we're doing now, but there's a whole history behind us of Project Healthy Children and my co-founder, David Dotson, that I can share as well. Yeah. Give us a little bit of, um, of an overview of what we are looking at when we're thinking about fortification and fortifying foods. What does that actually mean? Yeah, it's funny because I grew up in Europe and I did my schooling in the US and now I live part time in Australia. So all these quote unquote high income nations 
fortification is standard and has been for decades. And often when I speak to people, either you know North American or European or Australian, it's news to them. And the reason is, is because fortification is law. Everything just is fortified. So the government and these big companies, these food producers don't necessarily have to market it as something special. So if you're walking down a grocery aisle in New York City, you're not choosing, you know, iodized salt versus unidized. You know, Cheerios has iron already added to it. Edible oil has vitamin A. It's law because it works. Everything is fortified. Uh, and so that works and that's proven there's decades of science that if you eat staple foods the foods you eat every single day if they're fortified strengthened with these key nutrients that we all need then you're going to have a healthier life and so we're essentially bringing that proven science to areas in east africa where it hasn't been historically there or scaled up at all especially at the rural village level where we work uh and again the health outcomes will take time, uh, but the science is proven and we're definitely pressing, you know, pressing down the gas to get there. What are the sort of main food items that, that you might be thinking of when you're thinking about fortifying uh, at the uh, small scale? Uh, right. Yeah, I mean, t- typically the staples, whether large or small, would be your, your oils, right? Everything you, all those key foundational cooking ingredients, right? Oil, salt, uh, sugar, uh, and then flowers like wheat and maize primarily. And so here in East Africa, again, where we work, uh, we're targeting maize flour. Um, countries uh, across the region, upwards of 50%, even 90% of the population consumes this as their daily food. Uh, their workers, you're, you know, it gives you a lot of uh, calories and energy and it's readily, readily available and cheap. So for us, that was essentially our first aha moment. We figured out that this is the main staple that everybody eats. So for us, it was the perfect vehicle. If we were to add nutrients into this quote unquote vehicle, we're going to get nutrients into people and a lot of them. And so that was our first kind of, I guess, aha moment. And that's what we focused on to get us to this point. So if there is a low level of awareness of fortification in in the rich countries, let's say, and I'm not sure what the state of affairs is in Tanzania, but perhaps there might be an equally low level. Of, of appreciation of the value of fortifying your foods. Um, what's the what's the business model then? In other words, I can see how a consumer would say, yes, I'd like to buy this uh, oil over that one because it's an extra virgin olive oil or it's this or it's that or the other. Um, but very few people, I imagine, would, would say, okay, I'm going to grab this pack of flour because it's fortified. So if the consumer, this is my conjecture, right? But if the consumer has a limited awareness of the 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 value of of um having an item fortified they may not be willing to pay for it or they may not so tell me a little bit about the business model how how does it work Hmm. certainly and you know i think the awareness starts really with the government so we only work in countries where the government first of all understands fortification passes a law that mandates all staple foods or industries that produce these staple foods like large oil wheat, flour, sugar, uh, salt companies, that they have to do the job of fortification. <clears throat> and so that's our first, you know, when we're assessing whether to go to a country. And we were invited to Tanzania and somewhat to Kenya as well to do this job. Um, but again, that mandate really enforces these large industries that have the capacity, the ability uh, really to do the job of fortification because there is a cost and it's a recurring cost. The value that Sanku has is that we're approaching and enabling a sector that has been completely overlooked because governments and other NGOs and companies have considered small scale fortification, these small mills, some are in the villages, towns, even the cities, 
they consider them unfortifiable, right? Because there is no right. business model. To your point, you know, how do you incentivize these millers to sell a product that might be more expensive? And then you have to incentivize millions of consumers, typically mothers, to buy something that's more expensive. So our second aha moment, first, we already realized everybody eats the same thing. And that's a great vehicle, maize flour. We went to find out where was that maize flour being produced? It wasn't being produced at the large scale industrial mills. It's being produced, again, at the local level. So we found these small millers and we designed, invented a machine that attaches to these small mills and automates the process of adding these key life-saving nutrients into their flour. And, and, and these nutrients are, it's essentially a, a condensed form. It's in a powdered form. So if you were to break up, say, your daily vitamin, your multivitamin, we all take them. It's powder, right? And you sprinkle that in your food. Not exactly like that, but pretty much it's just like that. And so the miller now is doing the job of fortifying for his market. And so that was the second box we checked was cool. Now the miller has a machine to do the job. But getting back to your original question, how do you incentivize the consumer to now buy this product? Originally, the millers were selling a more expensive product because we were selling the nutrients to them to fortify. And they'd obviously have to pass that on to the consumer. And that didn't go anywhere. You know, mothers had choices. They said, well, this mill is cheaper. I just want flour. I don't, you know, I don't understand, you know, folic acid and reduction in neural tube defects. I mean, that's quite complicated. So we realized that we needed to come up with a business model that essentially lowered the cost or even neutralized it. And that's what we achieved. And we achieved that by, I guess, business one-on-one. You can't sell something to somebody who they don't see value in, right? They're not going to pay more for something that they don't see value in it. So we went to the miller and said, okay, what is the miller already paying for as far as inputs to run his day-to-day -day business? And these millers are buying empty bags, sacks, to pack their flour and sell it. So we thought, okay, these millers are paying a premium. They're buying these empty sacks, low, low quantities from a middleman. We put all our millers together, aggregated a couple hundred millers together, went directly to the wholesaler of these flour sacks, was able to see some volume economics and buy them cheaper. We now sell those empty flour sacks to the miller, plus the nutrients, this premix of vitamins and, and, and minerals to the miller as a package at the same price point that he was paying before for just the empty flour sacks. So the miller, it's an easy sell. He gets this machine he gets to use because we get a grant. He gets better flour bags delivered faster, empty ones with the premix, the nutrients. And now he can sell a premium product in the marketplace at the same price point as he previously was selling an unfortified product. I guess the biggest advantage there is now we're not, be, we're not required to change the behaviors of millions of people, millions of mothers to say, pay more for this product and try to convince them again of all the benefits of these nutrients. And this becomes even more successful as we saturate areas. Now, all the mills in the village or a town are fortifying. That mother, just like that supermarket aisle in New York, she walks down the road. This miller's fortified. This miller's fortified. It doesn't cost more. Gotcha. Gotcha. Really fascinating. And um, any pushback? Again, if it's something new that perhaps somebody doesn't quite understand and they haven't seen it before and now they're seeing it, any pushback saying, well, no, you're, what are you doing to my flower? Absolutely. In the beginning, there's always pushback when you're trying to change something um you know people are very traditional they're used to this color this taste this look and it was very important that we convince them through the millers remember i you know people believe who they're buying from right? and they bought from generations from this person or local leaders or community elders 
telling them that the nutrients do not change the, the look, the color, the taste of the flower, the, the cookability even. It doesn't change anything. In that sense, it's invisible. So that was the first thing. You know, the mothers want to know, are you, are you going to mess with my food, right? We're not. And then on top of that, here are all the health benefits. Your children are going to be sick less. You know, um, they're going to be smarter. They're going to be able to pay attention better in school. Um, and then that's the selling point, right? And then I, I guess the final one is, you know, the government has passed a law. And so the large scale food that you're already buying, let's say that they do have access to, say, wheat flour produced by a large mill or oil in that case, you've been eating that for years. Guess what? It's fortified and you didn't know it. And so in the beginning, a lot of that communication had to go out, but we've reached this tipping point that we have so many mills and we brand our bags as well, that we're trying to keep up with demand now because now it's just become normal, right? Once you do it long enough and at a big enough scale, it just becomes normal. And that's the exciting kind of point on that arc that we're at right now. Yeah. And reaching that last mile, you know, finding those rural, really far-flung places uh, where the big producers, perhaps their products aren't reaching. How difficult is that? It's, it's a big country, Tanzania, uh, bigger than France, and the roads aren't great. And so, yeah, we had to build uh, and get really smart about logistics. At, at scale, we are essentially a logistics company. If we're going to succeed, we have to get stuff from point A to point B. Nutrients, flower bags, machines from vendors, all the way to these very remote locations throughout East Africa. And we got to do it fast and have to do it at low cost because we want to sustain this business at scale. And so as we started, and this is going back to the early days, five, six, seven years ago, as we started to install these machines that we invented, they're called the Sanku dosifier because it doses the nutrients. As we started to install them at these small mills throughout Tanzania at the time, it was costing us a lot of money to drive around, to check if they're working, to deliver these products, to figure out when that miller might need a, a restocking of these nutrients. And so I guess this was our final aha moment. We thought if we're truly going to scale, we, we've got to literally become smart, smart, like, you know, like IT smart. And so we installed small cellular modules in all of our machines, these dosfire machines. Remember, they're strapped to the mill doing the job of fortification. They're also equi uh, equipped with a small SIM card and they're sending real time production data to the nearest cell tower to my laptop, to our staff laptops and dashboards and phones. And literally right now, I can see exactly how much a mill in the tiniest corner of the country here in East Africa, Tanzania is producing, how much flour they're producing, how much nutrients they're adding, if it's the right ratio to be, you know, to have that health out, uh, outcome rather, uh, if the machine's overheating, if the, the, the feeder that, that, that pushes out the powder, if it's jammed, all of those analytics in real time come to us. We can make fast decisions, cheap decisions, send out technicians, guarantee that to minimize that time that that mill is not fortifying, but also be able to map out better scheduling on when we have to deliver uh, products to that miller. Again, reducing our cost, allowing us to scale, but in a sustainable way. Gotcha. And the income itself. So you mentioned a uh, government grant uh, for certain things. Uh, how is the, what, what does the income stream look like? Or what are the sources? We have two main income streams. One is through philanthropy and, and donor grants. Uh, it, it could come through the, the government, but typically through individual donors or foundations. Uh, we get grants from big, big what we call big aid as well, like WFP, World Food Program, the Gates Foundation, uh, World Vision, all these big players. So we definitely have a lot of backers believing in our mission, uh, pushing us forward. But then we have this second revenue stream, which I'm really excited about because I think that's going to be the one that sustains us at scale. 
The millers, our customers, are paying for this as well. They're buying products from us, the same products they bought before, like the empty flower bags, but now they're buying it from us, again, bundled with the nutrients. And that's a revenue stream that, that, that we definitely rely on right now. And as we scale and we purchase more products through economies of scale, again, those costs go down, our margins go up. We would love to reach a point, and we feel we can in the next, say, three, four, five years, that we can become very, rather that we can reduce the dependencies on donors to fund this project and become a true for-profit or, or partially for-profit in these, in these markets, markets that we work. Again, we want to do this job at scale. We want to reach hundreds of millions of people, but we want to do it for a very long time. So we do need to have some sustainable economics built in, and the path looks pretty clear at this point. Fascinating. As the um, as the the scale of your reality increases and you become more sophisticated, are you uh, are you noticing some some of the big players perhaps paying attention to you guys and saying, well, you know, let's incorporate them into us or let's take them over or whatever. I don't know. It's certainly the the environment uh, and the feedback and the attention today is is very different to when we started five, six, seven years ago. At that point, um, again, they considered the mills and the sector that we worked with unfortifiable, almost untouchable. There was no, you know, sustainable economics. They felt it wasn't going to have impact. No one, it's kind of that thing. No one's ever done it, so why do it, right? And mm -hmm. if we had that attitude, we wouldn't be talking on computers right now. And so very much we, I guess, were the, the ones that said, no, this has to be done. These people are at risk. Um, we have a, a way to save lives. We haven't figured it out completely. It's not super pretty yet. It's a bit messy, but you know what? We're gonna we're gonna keep at it until we figure something out. And we did. And I think that perseverance and the scale in which we've gotten to, reaching you know almost five million people every single day with Fortified Flour, working with close to a thousand mills across two countries, close to a hundred staff. Yeah, people have taken notice that we've kind of the proof of concept stage. We've surpassed that. I think now the pressure on, especially from these big guys, is great, you've proved it can be done now, congratulations. Now, how big can you go? And that's a whole nother set of pressure, right? Um, and now, you know, we're definitely looking at, you know, developing a five-year business model, uh, kind of sequencing out countries throughout East Africa. Where do we want to go next? What makes sense as far as the cost of doing business? The money is there in the sense they want to back us to scale in countries. Uh, we just have to be really smart about how fast we go. We don't want to be caught speeding. We want, again, we want to be doing this for a long time, sustainably. Um, and so we want to be careful how how many shiny things in the room we chase at once and just kind of be targeted, la targeted and laser focused on what we're doing every day. And the stuff you're doing in East Africa now, are there folks in Asia, folks in Latin America uh, paying attention to what's happening on, uh, on your side? Are people doing similar things elsewhere? What's what's the the world of uh, of uh, small scale fortification look like? Well, first of all, the, large, the, the world of small-scale fortification um, is critically needed. You know, when you talk about over 2 billion people suffering from malnutrition every single day, probably half of those people, roughly, it's very hard to tell, but at least, at least half of those, so around a billion people, are dependent on small-scale industries, small and medium enterprises for their daily food. So, so the quote-unquote market demand is there or, or a critical need is there for sure. So we do have other players in other regions like South Asia, um, organizations from India, Pakistan, Central Asia even, uh, asking us to come over. And again, we have to be smart that we don't spread ourselves too thin. 
um, that we don't uh, get caught speeding. And so we are going to focus on East Africa for the next couple of years, um, at which point we will start looking at other markets for sure. Um, and possibly even other staples. You know, right now we're focusing on maize flour because that's what everybody eats in East Africa, at least. Uh, maybe when we go to South Asia or Southeast Asia, we'll look at, you know, potentially small scale rice fortification. Again, if it makes sense, if we can do it big and if we can do it sustainably. Yeah. Now, you mentioned a little bit earlier you have about 100 staff. Is that right? Uh, correct. Okay. What? Give us a little bit of insight into Sanku, the organization, uh, you guys. Uh, who's where? I, I understand you mentioned also you might be in the same building as uh, the Global Alliance for Improved Nutrition. I think you mentioned they're floor downstairs or something like it. We are, they, and they are very strong partners. So, um, yeah, GAIN, Global Alliance for Improved Nutrition. We share uh, a building. We share uh, work as well. We are co co-partners on a on a, a few projects uh and so you know we're not going to solve this by ourselves you know sanku it's it's a huge problem we're taking one little piece of it but it definitely is a kind of a collective family of organizations uh targeting different aspects of this problem um and so yeah that's you know they're there and i was just at davos last week i was just there for a day just to present to a couple of our donors and so wfp was there nutrition international was there uh technoserve a strong partner was there and one of our donors bill and melinda gates foundation was there and so the conversation that we had i i never felt more positivity and and confidence that we can solve this and so it definitely is still the shiny thing in the room fortification um, small scale fortification, which we really are driven for, is definitely up there at the table more than it ever has been. Um, and, and to answer your question regarding our staff, you know, our staff, it was only a few years ago that we were about 10 people. Uh, I moved to Tanzania um, with a backpack. You know, it was me and my co-founder, David Dotson. He's a, a professor of graduate school at University of Stanford. And so this is really his his idea through Project Healthy Children that I mentioned before, you know, him and his, his former wife. And, and so to come all this way where it was just an idea and, 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 you know, a scrap, a napkin with a, with a scrap design of a dosifier. And then, oh, let's try this business model. And, and me and him, uh, me and David, my co-founder, just bouncing off crazy ideas. And then, and then all of a sudden we were five people, uh, four years ago. And now we're a hundred people. And so the momentum is, it's a bit wild to think, uh, and I often do it, how far we've come. Um, but it's even more exciting to think about what, what are we going to look like in five years if we've come this far in five years? Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, speaking of, you know, you showing up there with a backpack a while back, um, what's your trajectory? Tell, tell us a little bit about you. You mentioned the U.S., you mentioned Europe. Uh, what's, uh, what's the background all about? So, yeah, I was born in uh, Spain, Ibiza, Spain, the island. Uh, my parents were uh, American parents, but they moved there in kind of that movement, late 60s, early 70s. Um, how can I say it? Well, I wouldn't say they were hippies, but I would definitely say they were in, in the natural sector. <laughs> and uh, they had three children, and, and uh, I grew up there until I was about 11 years old, and then uh, went to the U.S., San Francisco, um, um, for, for, for high school and then moved to Oberlin, Ohio for my college degree, a very liberal little island in the middle of cornfields in Ohio, and then left uh, soon after that to start this journey, uh, pass, passing through Ibiza again, um, ended up in Cambodia. I went for four months to volunteer for a very small NGO working with street children and beach children, children that sold or picked cans or begged on the beaches and the streets, about 100 kids at the time to get them off 
And out of that environment, um, give them some basic health and food and nutrition and education and ultimately get them back into their, their families, into the, the public school system. Really, really great project. Um, went for four months, ended up staying four years. I just fell in love with that work because that was my first true exposure to development and social work. Um, but it became very evident, very quick, uh, what malnutrition does to a person. And, you know, these children were saying they were nine years old. They looked like they were seven. I could see learning disabilities, uh, kids getting sick, infections, some passing away from diarrhea, malaria, should not pass away from those. Those are absolutely preventable. And so that's when I started to look at nutrition as, as really preventive, preventative medicine rather than the Band-Aid where I felt I got to them too, too late. And that's when I, I found my, my co-founder, David Dotson. He was advertising for a job um, to look into developing a technology for small-scale fortification, a business model, model for fortification to ultimately reach 100 million people. And he, he, this guy with this amazing idea, and I thought, this is a guy I need to meet. And he hired me, and we worked together. Uh, two years in Nepal, Kathmandu, developing a machine, flew out to Tanzania with a backpack, developed a business model. Uh, and before you knew it, um, here we are, reaching 5 million people with 100 staff. So when you were in, uh, in Ohio doing your, uh, your college degree, did you foresee that Tanzania would be in the horizon for you? I, I, maybe not Tanzania specifically, but I was the kid growing up with the National Geographic uh, ripped out pages on the wall, right? I always had an affinity for travel because I grew up as a kid. We, grew, we lived in North Africa, South America, throughout Europe. So I love travel. I love different cultures. Definitely, um, you know, the, the continent of Africa always attracted me. And I remember scribbling on a piece of paper, I think in class, you know, when you're, when you're young, they ask you, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I wanted to be an air mailman delivering medicine to villages in Africa. I think I was like nine, nine years old. And I don't have a pilot's license, but, you know, I'm involved, you know, delivering essentially medicines, but better, better nutrition to villages. So I definitely, you know, be careful what you wish for. And I'm very happy I wish for it. Do you see yourself out there for the long term? This is my last job. This is for sure my last job. I don't see um, doing anything else. I, I, I'm blessed that I wake up doing something that I would do anyways. Um, whether I was paid or not, it definitely is a dream job. Um, and that, that, and, and everybody I work with kind of feels that way too. You know, they can't wait to get to the office um, and work on what we're doing because every single day there's a challenge, but every single day we move closer to our mission, which is to end malnutrition. I mean, that's, that's something to wake up for. Absolutely. Absolutely. The, uh, the bit that I wanted to ask you about, even though we, we were covering this a little bit earlier, but uh, what sort of costs are we looking at when we're looking at a per person per year? Uh, cost to 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 ensure that their their food is uh, that they're getting all the micronutrients that they need that's a great question because that's literally probably the first or second driving metric that we judge ourselves you know are we doing well or not right number one is how many people are we reaching that's super important but again th that that's scale we want to sustain that and do that for a long time and so the second metric is okay great we're reaching a lot of people but how much is it costing us to reach them and 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 one great thing about fortification whether you know other large-scale industries or us it's extremely cost effective the nutrients are very very low cost um and it has a huge impact and, and so for us Right now, it costs us as an organization to guarantee that one person has fortified flour for an entire year is less than a dollar. Mm -hmm. If you if you were to donate ten dollars to us, we guarantee that at least ten people are going to eat fortified flour for an entire year. 
we're going to, as we scale, we're going to become more efficient. In the next two years, we're going to bring that down to somewhere around 30 cents. So now your $10, your same $10 is going to reach three times as many people, 30 people. Um, one day we'll get it to under 10 cents. And that's, that's, that's the direction we're going. We want to make sure that there's a lot of bang for buck. We want, again, we want to make sure we can sustain this, that the revenue we're getting from the market is just increasing. We're becoming less dependent on donors. Is there some responsibility there as well? Um, and it's all heading in that direction. Excellent. Excellent. Well, look, before we, uh, we part ways, I have to ask you, what's that key takeaway that you'd love for the audience to keep in mind after they finish listening to today's show? Yeah, well, for me, it's it's kind of the takeaway I, I get every single day in this job is that, um, you know, when you think about food as a basic human right, which it is just like shelter and safety and, and all these other basic human rights, we, we want to take it a step further. It's nutritious food is a basic human right. Just having your belly full is not enough. That causes what's called hidden hunger. You're starving from the lack of nutrients. And that's what we're combating. So nutritious food is a basic human right. And that's something we're fighting every single day to guarantee for millions. Excellent. Felix, look, thank you so very much for taking the time out of your busy day to uh, to share your insight with us here at the Do One Better podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure uh, seeing you again and speaking with you, learning from you. And I wish you continued success for 2023 and beyond. Alberto, thank you. Likewise, it was a lot of fun. Perfect. And that's a wrap. Thanks very much for tuning in. As always, you've been listening to a great chat with Felix Brooks Church, co-founder and CEO of Sanku. For information about this conversation and over 200 other case studies and interviews with remarkable thought leaders in philanthropy, sustainability and social entrepreneurship, just visit our website at liji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I.org. Thanks so much for tuning in, as always. Very much appreciated. Hope you enjoyed this show as much as I enjoyed producing it for you. And I'll catch you on Monday.